Well, thank you, worship team. That was such a pleasure to worship together with everyone this morning. Let's continue by praying. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, in eternal glory. And we worship you and continue our worship with these songs that come from Scripture, the songs of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seal, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We praise you this morning, Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ, for in you we have our whole life, our whole salvation. And as was sung for us, there's not one sin left, Jesus, because you paid the full debt. And mercy is constantly ongoing, and grace, your power for our lives, is constantly ours. As the scriptures say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, which is exactly what we're doing when we pray that we may receive from you what we need, that is, mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. And we pray that you would do that for us this morning, Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the worthy Lamb. We pray that as we look into the scriptures this morning, that we would see more of your glory, Lord Jesus. For, it's for your sake, we pray. Amen. But before we begin our sermon this morning and look at continuing to look in Luke, it's that time of the month where I remind you of the book of the month that I put in the news and notes. So if you don't get news and notes, you should subscribe by contacting the office. But the book this month is A Praying Life by Paul E. Miller. The subtitle says it all, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. I don't know if you've read this book, but it's a book that really challenged and changed my prayer life in a lot of ways, so I'd really encourage you to read it. Paul Miller runs a ministry called See Jesus, which is a wonderful ministry, by the way, Um, but it's all about learning to pray as a conversation in your life. Interesting model that he uses. So anyway, A Praying Life, wonderful book. You'll really enjoy it. Easy to read, too. So, well, you know, in our passage today in in Luke 13, verses 1 to 9, let me put this away. It's a fascinating passage. I don't know if you've looked at it yet, but Jesus actually comments on current events of his day and says things that you probably wouldn't expect, but uh, he's commenting on a couple tragedies. You know, and we ask similar questions, and we could even take the way Jesus talks about it and say the same kinds of things. For example, were those people who died from COVID? worse sinners than those of us who got COVID and are still alive? 
Were those people who were killed by senseless violence in the city worse sinners than those of us that enjoyed a really nice meal at a fine restaurant that night? Were those people, those civilians who got destroyed in that latest political conflict and pick a country, were they worse sinners than those who escaped? What about those 900 people in Pakistan who've drowned by flooding over this past month? Are they worse sinners than the rest of the Pakistanis? You know how it goes. You can just fill in the blank and make up your own question. But you see, a common mistake that people assume is that they assume that absence of tragedy means that God is pleased with them. And so they look at their lives and they realize things are going pretty well. And so the assumption that's naturally made by man's, man's naturally self-made religion is that, well, that means I'm okay with God. And as a corollary, people even think, well, when I look around and I see what happens in other people's lives, you know, God's actually probably a little more pleased with me. Not that I'm great or anything, but he's a little bit more pleased with me than the other people around me because my life doesn't have as much suffering in it. It's true. That's how we think naturally. You know, there's a psalm for that, Psalm 50. You'll read it on your own someday. But Psalm 50, starting in verse 16, I want to read this to you. It says, but to the wicked, God says. Now, it's really important you know who the wicked are in this psalm, because it's not who you might think. It's not those people that reject God or are outside of God's people. No, he's talking about the people who think they're his. And he says, to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now get this. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. Well, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of my God. It's a big mistake to look at tragedies in the world and assume that there's this one-to-one -one correlation between how pleased God might be with the works in our own life. You know, people are always asking why in the face of tragedy, whether it's from human evil or whether it's from nature. Uh, how do you answer people? How do you even answer yourself? I mean, there are many good answers out there that people do give, and of course there are many terrible answers that people give. But turning your Bibles to Luke 13 or look in your worship folder, here's one way to answer. This is the way Jesus answered on this particular occasion. And he said, it's recorded for us, there were some present at that very time, you know, Jesus is busy teaching, who told him, so they sort of arrive and say, here's the latest news, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because he suffered in this way? No, I tell you the truth. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other offenders who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none, and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit from this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put it on some manure. Then if it shouldn't bear fruit next year, well and good, but I mean, if it does, well and good, but if not, uh, you can cut it down. Well, on this particular occasion, Jesus is very bold in how he answers uh, current tragedies, current events. And we're going to learn this morning this very simple message from Luke, and that is repent and bear fruit now, for soon, or soon be removed and perish eternally. That's the message from this passage, repent and bear fruit now, or soon be removed and perish eternally. And so Jesus uses these recent tragedies in the world to to point them to a, a greater thing that's going to happen, great judgment day. And so verses 1 to 5 is a reflection upon uh, two great evils that have taken place, two great tragedies, and then there's a parable that applies this, and that parable is the end of patience and the unfruitful fig tree. Now, there's something else we should probably notice, too, in our passage up front, and that is, you know, Luke the evangelist is deciding to put together his book the way he does for very specific reasons. And one of those reasons here, of course, would be that if we just look around, there are unrepentant people dying all around us every single day. And wouldn't we want them to consider what they should be doing in the face of all these judgments, that there might be hope, that there might be salvation? And so Luke is telling this as well to encourage us to be saved in Jesus, but also to work toward sharing this news with others. Well, first, let's look at Jesus' reflection on these two great tragedies. There's one evil that takes place by a very evil man. And what are we supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to think about that? And then Jesus himself brings up another situation about just what seems to be this random tragedy in life. So it's big news. You know, the headlines of the day are reading, Galileans massacred on the way to the temple. And so these people show up from Jerusalem, and and they bring that news to Jesus. You know, read all about it. Here it is. And so while Jesus is teaching, these people show up, and they ask, and they want him to comment about Pilate, the governor. And they report that Pilate has slaughtered this group of Galilean worshipers, and it's possible here, and it's not, probably not likely, but that he took their blood and then mingled it for some kind of a pagan sacrifice. Maybe. Pilate's a pretty evil guy. But, uh, I mean, this is amazing. That's like people breaking into our church on Sunday morning here and blowing us all up. I mean, it's a crazy thing. The pilot just decides he's going to slaughter these people on the way to worship. And they're probably on their way to offer sacrifices in the temple during Passover, and they're intercepted by his soldiers and, and just executed on the streets. So what do you think people wonder? Why? Why, God, did this happen? And, of course, it doesn't seem to make any sense to anybody at the moment. Well, Pilate is actually known for this kind of behavior. This is actually nothing new for him. Uh, He's known to be a very bloody, 
very cruel type of a ruler who just delighted in especially offending Jewish people. A blatant disregard for all of their sensibilities. He's a very evil man. Yet, it's possible that maybe this group of Galileans, this particular group, were a bunch of political rebels at the same time, that they were trying to be worshipers. That happens in this world, too. Could be Galilee was a hotbed of rebellion at the time. So, but Jesus knows what people are thinking. It was a very common mindset at the time. It's popular even with us today. They're thinking that, well, it's a terrible, sad situation, but those men who died, I mean, they were likely pretty great sinners to suffer such a terrible death like that. And of course, people are mad at the government because people always are. But then you heard probably, you, you know, we've heard similar types of questions and statements and concerns that somehow, well, those must have been worse people because that happened to them. I mean, people made really stupid comments around September 11th. Remember that time frame? Of course you do here, especially. You know, and we see that some, some people make really stupid, foolish statements like, well, you know, some of those people might have deserved it, or, you know, they talk about how, you know, well, the Christians, they got saved in the, in the episode, and, and they weren't killed. But I've always wondered when people make those kind of dumb remarks that why no one ever presents me with the data on how many Christians are actually saved in tragedies versus non-Christians. Because I have a feeling that it's not significantly different. Not significantly different. And of course, there are many wonderful stories of God's special mercy and grace. But you might conclude from the way some people speak that that's what they really believe. But that's a wrong extrapolation from one story. Of course, we should rejoice in the stories where we saw God's hand at, at work in a miraculous way. Maybe he even sent an angel to prevent something from happening and rescued so-and-so from some tragedy. Praise the Lord and tell the story over and over again. But that's that incident. And God has wise purposes and counsels far beyond our understanding. So we are not in a position to extrapolate and to make some kind of a theological statement about how things happen in this world. And so Jesus asks if they think that those Galileans were worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans. Oh, and by the way, do you think they're worse sinners than you? Is that what Jesus is really asking? What do you think? And Jesus replies, of course, with an emphatic no here at the forward, in forward way, and, and as it, you know, unless they repent, unless all of them repent, well, you're going to similarly perish. Is Jesus predicting, do you think, here, that you know what? There's going to be another evil that happens in this world, believe it or not, because evil people rule the world. Maybe some of those there who are thinking those kinds of things, maybe the next tragedy will strike them. Then I wonder what their theology will be. Well, Jesus is obviously talking about a much worse fate than just simply dying a death. He's talking about God's judgment and hell. And also note that he leaves open God's use of his own prerogative to bring more tragedies into this world. And at some point, you know, all of us and all of our lives are going to be touched by tragedies. Oh, you may have escaped so far, but most likely you're not going to make it to the end of your life without having some tragedy touch you because we live in a fallen world and we live in a world where God, because of his own counsel, 
gives permission for these things to take place. And Jesus obviously believes that all people without exception are sinners destined to perish because he's telling you unless you repent, you know, something worse is going to happen. In the book of Romans, we read that there's not one righteous, not even one. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. Of course, the gift of God is eternal life. But we're not to that part of the sermon yet. Maybe those massacred by Pilate were actually worse sinners. They could have been. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. But you know, that's not the point, and Jesus isn't going to tell us. Maybe next time, it'll be some of those who are listening. Jesus is looking at his crowd. Maybe it'll be you. You know, any of us have friends, a lot of us have friends where this happens in, in, in our lives, where they're dealt such tragedies that it just affects us even personally. I mean, I had a number of years ago now, but I, I had a friend whose adult daughter was just senselessly murdered on the streets of Chicago. And what do you do when someone tells you that story in church? You know, I've told you about another friend of mine whose brother was kidnapped and, and murdered. I mean, we all have tragedies that touch our lives. But you know, so we reflect on those things and what Jesus is teaching here, and he makes it really clear it's pretty simple. You should probably repent before it's too late because you never know. And we should tell people that. And so Jesus doesn't stop with the story that these, these people bring in the news in from Jerusalem, the latest hot thing that happened, Pilate massacred a bunch of Galileans. Jesus brings up the story that it was not too long ago either. It's like, remember when that tower fell? You know, part of the wall there in Jerusalem and it just fell and killed 18 people. And he says, so what do you think? Were they worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem at the time? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he reminds them of this tragedy. And people are just doing their daily work. And he puts the same question to them again. And again, he gives them the same answer. Do they think these 18 people were worse debtors or worse sinners or worse than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? By the way, you know, what about those 39 people who died in the flood in Kentucky? this week. I mean, are they worse sinners? Are we supposed to attempt some kind of an evaluation or a measurement of people's sins compared to our own? Do you think that's a wise use of our time to count up the sins of other people and ourselves and try to figure out who's a worse sinner and who's not? And again, Jesus emphatically teaches the answer is no. All of us are sinners and unless we repent, we will perish. We should fear God. All of us. I want you to listen really, I don't usually read from commentaries, but this one I thought was fascinating, so I want to read this little section to you from John Calvin's commentary. It's a good recap of this passage, and, and it's really a good application. And so just these five verses, these two stories of the massacre of the Galilean worshipers and the story of the Siloam tragedy, it goes like this. So if God spares us for a time, we are so far from having a right to take such kindness and forbearance as an opportunity for slumber that we ought to regard it as an invitation to repentance. To correct the false and cruel judgment which we are accustomed to pass on wretched sufferers, and at the same time to shake off the indulgence which every man cherishes toward himself, he shows first that those who are treated with severity are not the most wicked of all men. 
because God administers his judgments in such a manner that some are instantly seized and punished, and others are permitted to remain long in the enjoyment of ease and luxury. Secondly, he declares that all the calamities which happen in the world are so many demonstrations of the wrath of God, and hence we learn what an awful destruction awaits us if we do not avert it. Jesus provided a divinely insightful reflection upon these two great tragedies. We should be amazed we're still alive, actually, by the time we get done reading this. We're still here. And people should not assume that the absence of tragedy in their life means that God is pleased with them. And furthermore, escape from tragedy actually means very little if it doesn't lead to repentance. Part of what John Calvin was just saying in that commentary. Let me say that again. Escape from tragedy has very little meaning if it doesn't lead to repentance. Did you ever notice that people have those stories to tell you? I mean, I bet half the people I meet have those kind of stories if I would just ask them about them. They have some story to tell about an amazing rescue in their life. So listen to them tell their story. Be amazed at the story, because they're usually amazing stories. And then point them to Jesus Christ. Because when you start asking, well, what's the meaning of that? Why do you think God did it that way in your life? Those are the kinds of questions I ask people. Most people never thought about it. And you can have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Do you see that Jesus really here, what he's doing is masterfully preaching the gospel in the face of tragedy? Notice that Jesus never answered the question that's on everyone's mind, which is why these things happened. Because the why eventually is always going to lead to the same conclusion anyway. It's, it's to lead you to Jesus and to salvation, that's why. And notice that Jesus didn't shy away from commenting on the tragedy and giving a proper interpretation. Tragedies are opportunities for the gospel. They're not embarrassments or problems for it. And of course we show compassion for people. And we feel intensely for them. And we should. And you know, if that's a problem for you, and I've run into some people over the course of my time in ministry, that that is a problem. That for some reason, I don't know why it is, it just, it's hard for you to feel and empathize with other people's situations deeply. You need to. Because tragedy is awful. And we're all fellow human beings living in a suffering world. So one lesson here is always tell the truth about these situations and what they're pointing to. And they're pointing to very clearly that you need to repent and bear fruit now, because it's going to be too late someday, and God will determine when he's going to remove you from this earth, and if you are not repentant and right with God through Jesus Christ, you will perish eternally. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. You know, and God has many ways of accomplishing that. Many, many ways. And we just saw two in our text this morning. But a few words that I want to say to you also by means of application is be careful and be wise commenting on current tragedies and current news and things that happen in the world. Be very careful and be wise because none of us in this room are privy to the counsel of God. And so we need to be very, very careful about what we say, about how he chooses to govern his world. Second of all, be very compassionate and clear with people 
about the spiritual realities that face them and about the real hope that there is in Jesus. Because this message is not something, the gospel message that we give to people is not like, you know, I'm so glad I figured it out and I'm saved and you're damned and if you don't believe, well, then you're not going to heaven and I'm just sort of smug about that. That's not the gospel message. It's to have compassion for people and their sin and ask them, do you want hope? Because there's hope. You can be forgiven. You can escape. That's what Jesus did for you. Well, Jesus is not done with this conversation. Actually, the parable is attached to the story. And Jesus uses the parable to apply the lessons from these current tragedies. And so that's why he tells this parable of the end of patience and the unfruitful fig tree. So just as he taught about death and judgment, he's also teaching about this fact that, but you know what? All of you in the room are still alive. The tower didn't fall on you. Pilate missed you. You have a second chance. They witnessed being spared by God, and they should reflect upon his mercy. That's what survivors should do. That's what non-tragedy people should do. Now, this passage is unique to Luke. Of course, there's another story, later different story in Passion Week that happens shown at the end of Matthew and Mark's gospel. That's a very different occasion. But here we have, very simple, we have these orders to remove the fruitless fig tree in verses 6 to 7. And then there's a delay that's granted because of the intercession of the vine dresser. Um, they're one more year. One more year. So we read, and so he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, it's not unusual to have fruit trees and vineyards, if you've ever been to a vineyard. There are often fruit trees there and gardens. And one particular uh, fig tree had been unfruitful for three years. Now, we're supposed to remember that, you know, we're breaking up Luke to preach through it, of course. But, you know, just last week in verse 53 talked about, Jesus was talking about how he would divide families, you remember, and how mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and all those people would be against each other. And we know that that was a, we found that that was a quotation, really, a reference, if, if you will, to Micah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 7. Well, so is this. So it's the same passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that he's been talking about. And the passage really begins with this lament at the beginning of Micah chapter 7 about the fact that how can it be that I'm a bunch of, among a bunch of godly people but I can't find one? So Micah begins, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit picker and the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. There's not a godly person left from among these self-proclaimed godly people who think they're God's people. That's what Jesus is referring to as he's telling this. And, and he's, he's referring most especially to Isaiah chapter 5, of course, a contemporary of Micah, prophet at the same time, said similar things. And Isaiah chapter 5, you can turn there. This is a good one to turn to. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. It's a common allegory for the people of God. Um, used throughout Scripture from Isaiah chapter 5. And it's really the opening of the book. I mean, Isaiah has an extremely long introduction to his book, and then he has an extremely long book to follow. But 
it's filled with just wonderful prophecies about our Messiah, and we learn so much about God's character, but it's still in the introduction, really. So Isaiah 5.1 begins, Let me sing a song now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyards. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and I will, it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground and I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Very poetic passage, very powerful passage. It was a famous passage, referencing very clearly the upcoming exile to Babylon in the 6th century B.C. that the people of God and Israel would have to endure. The original hearers knew what Jesus was talking about. Every time a vineyard analogy came up, people know what you're talking about. In fact, Jesus will reference this passage in Isaiah in Matthew 20, Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, John 15, and this passage here. It's a very important passage. And so in this particular teaching in Luke 13, it's pretty simple. The vineyard is Israel. The tree is going to represent any particular Israelite. And really, all those individuals listening right now, that's who it is. And the owner of the vineyard, that's God the Father. And the vineyard keeper is Jesus, who's going to be interceding for them still. This particular fig tree has been unproductive for three years. It's a nice way to tell a story because it adds a little local color to it as well. But, I mean, three years is a long time. I don't know if you've had a fruit tree in your yard. I have. If it doesn't bear fruit after three years, that thing's gone. Um, but it parallels Jesus' ministry. Did you notice that? He's beyond two years of ministry now. He's in his third year. Hmm. Israel really has been unfruitful, spiritually speaking, for a long time. Not just these three years. It's been a long, long time. But the Messiah comes on the scene. It's still long enough, and so the owner gives you order to uproot it and discard and burn this unproductive fig tree. The tree only takes up space and robs other trees nutrients where they could feed. As one Scholar put it, he says, it's nothing, I mean, they become nothing more than a glorified weed in the vineyard of the Lord. Perhaps this is anticipating, in Luke's theology especially, the move to include the Gentiles and to make room for them and redefine the people of God of the New Covenant. And this is the argument of Romans chapter 11, all prefigured here. And it wouldn't be too long, the next generation, and the Lord would do this very, very literally. Well, delay gets granted because of the intercession of the vine keeper. So although there's very little hope at this point, uh, the vineyard keeper asks to give the tree one more year. He'll give it special attention during the last year, even though, even though the tree doesn't deserve it. 
even though these people have seen miracle after miracle after miracle from Jesus, and they still ask for another miracle, and they still don't believe. Jesus teaches them constantly, constantly, constantly about God in the Old Testament, about who he is as the Messiah, and they don't pay attention. They don't put their faith in him. But he's still going to give them some more attention, special attention this last year, special teaching that we'll be covering a lot of it in Luke, and they don't deserve any of it. But he's really referring to the patience of God in giving these people so long to consider who he was. He's referring to his last year and the special care. And regardless, you see in this parable two themes that are put before us right away, God's displeasure and God's patience and how they go together. And I want you to notice that they're both there. So there's this agreement that's cut between the owner and the keeper in our parable for one year. So if there's no fruit, it's going to be removed. And in the original language here, as it's recorded in Greek, it's, they have different ways of, of giving you conditional clauses. The point of the way the story's told here is that, okay, I'll give it one more year, but that's highly unlikely to happen. That's the construction of the syntax there. So it's assumed it won't happen. But he's still going to give me a year. It's a pivotal year then. It's a year about life and death. And most of Israel is going to fail to recognize who Jesus is. So let's talk about repentance a moment. Because that's a big theme this morning. And so how do we measure repentance? Well, it's pretty clear. You just measure it by the fruit. It's not that hard. We make it complicated for a variety of reasons. But you probably noticed this as you've dealt with people over the years. Maybe even dealt with your own heart. That re true repentance is not the strain of words. In other words, it's not just, I'm really, 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 really sorry. The true repentance is not resolve. I'm going to do better next year. True repentance is not religious in the sense that I'm going to go to church now and give more money or whatever it might be that you think. True repentance is not measured by tears. Met a lot of people like that. I don't know where they get those tears from. But after time, you know, it's not repentance. Because time will tell. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is talking about his preaching, and he says here, he kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also to those at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Meaning repent, turn away from, and turn to God in faith, and here's the key phrase. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's what he preached. Repent from your sinful life, put your trust in Jesus, and show the fruit, not by your own efforts, but show the fruit because the Holy Spirit now lives in your life. So when you talk about repentance, it's also important to realize, don't misunderstand, here's another common mistake today, is that it's just measured by a cleaned up life on the outside. Because that's what people think you're looking for. Sometimes it's what we think we're supposed to do but that's what's called moralism. And moralism is the enemy of the gospel. 
Because we are not saved by works. We don't get sanctified by works. We don't get into heaven by works. We don't measure ourselves against one another by saying that I'm better than you by moralism. That's just cleaning up the outside. But the problem is also on the inside. So that's not repentance either. So then what is it? It's really simply, it's a matter of heart and life that's based on the truth. That's what it is. Repentance is changing your heart, changing your behavior. But it's all based upon the truth of the gospel and its power. Nothing else. Repentance can't really be accomplished by your own efforts. God has to do it. He has to turn your heart so you go to him. That's how you know what it is. So this parable relates to the truth that the end of God's patience is pretty close for these people especially, for unfruitful people, really, who profess membership in the kingdom of God. Membership is the people of God, but they're not really a part of it. They just think they are. You know, and it's always been that way in the history of the church, and it's always going to be that way. I mean, Jesus told numerous parables about that too, right? So it's always going to be that way. Here's another passage from John Calvin's commentary I want you to listen to again. He says, he spoke also this parable. The substance of it is that many are endured for a time who deserve to be cut off, but they gain nothing by the delay if they persist in their obstinacy. And of course, that's what we see in the history of what happens after Jesus tells this parable, and he gives them another year, and they don't believe in it. Continuing with the quotation, the wicked flattery by which hypocrites are hardened and become more obstinate arises from this cause, that they do not think of their sins until they're compelled, and therefore, so long as God winks at these and delays his chastisements, they imagine that he is well satisfied with them. Oh, that takes us back to Psalm 50 at the beginning. People think, that if God doesn't act, that he approves. That's not true. Don't be like that. Surely you're not. But do realize that there are many people like this out there, and they need to consider Jesus' words. I mean, they're very similar, you know, to make a little more lightheaded statement about it. You could say things like, it's like when the doctor tells you, well, you have a year to live. Is that a word of judgment or a word of compassion? Or to both, probably, right? In other words, God's giving you more time. I mean, if you're still alive, you have more time, right? And Jesus' words are what we're to consider and to put before people, his instructions about, about repentance and about life. In fact, the rest of Luke is going to fill that in. So consider these words. God is patient and gives us special attention even today. The Apostle Peter would write many years later, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Talking about Jesus' promise that he's going to return to this earth, bring his kingdom in its fullness, bring all blessing to his people and all judgment to his enemies, he's not slow. As some counsel on us, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So as long as Jesus delays, we have an opportunity before us to bring life to people in the message of the gospel. And really, this message today, it's not just for that other person. 
Even if you've already come to Jesus, this can enrich your faith deeply. I hope it already has. Repent and bear fruit now, or soon be removed from the earth and perish eternally. You see, because when we look at our world today, there's going to be tragedy in the headlines tomorrow morning in the newspaper, guaranteed. It'll be there. If you don't read a newspaper, you know, and you look at the internet or your phone or whatever, well, guess what's going to pop up on your news feed right away? Some tragedy, some evil in the world somewhere. There's going to be tragedy that's going to, you know, if you watch the news on TV, it's going to blare out of those people's mouths, those TV reporters, and there's some grand sympathy for some tragedy in the world somewhere. That's the world we live in. And we're attached to, we, we know about these things much more than we used to, but will you reflect upon this news tomorrow morning any differently because of Jesus' words in Luke 13? I hope I do. What do you think Jesus would say about the headlines in tomorrow's newspaper? You know, in our passage this morning, we learn that the justice of God is coming because he provides previews of his justice every single day. That's another way to look at those tragedies. The passage that we look at today also teaches us that the mercy of God is still in effect. You know how we know that? Because he didn't wipe everybody out. There are still people left alive. Even in the midst of tragedies, great stories of mercy. And those people can look on those tragedies. You see, both of these things, the justice and the mercy of God, the scriptures say, behold the justice and the mercy of our God. Both. So we see these unrepentant people dying all around us, and people who die unrepentant do truly perish eternally. It doesn't matter how much you love them. And it doesn't matter how much they suffered. You don't get into heaven by suffering. And you don't get there because somebody in your family loved you a lot. You get into heaven because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so how are you going to bring both compassion and righteousness on, to people who are, you have to minister in the midst of tragedy? It should be easy to sympathize and be compassionate because we all live in a fragile world. We should point out that the goal really is not to avoid death. So many people think that's the goal. Well, no one has achieved that goal. Okay? Some people think their life is meant they want to avoid tragedy at all costs. That's not the goal. It's to avoid perishing after death. That's a good goal. And tragedies in this world point us to Christ, and we can use those to point others to Christ. We all know the verse very well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then, how might you direct people that are convicted by their sin to repent? Well, there are many ways to share the gospel, you know. There's not just one way. Here's one way. So you could tell people, for example, to start repenting of their specific sins until they're overwhelmed and realize they can't complete the list. I've shared the gospel with people that way before. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just start repenting. Now keep going. Got any more? Yeah. And then they realize after a while, I mean, if God is truly working on their heart, 
ah, it's not even really that. It's at the core of my being. I'm a sinful person. Exactly. Now you got it. And so they realize that they're completely hopeless before God. Then tell people you can complete your repentance, if you will, by faith. So you can stop repenting to no purpose. Because, you know, a lot of people do that. They just think if they repent enough, somehow they're going to get to heaven. Go to confession enough, how oh, you're going to get in. Yeah. That doesn't do it. Because you're never going to get over it, get through everything. It's impossible. So you have to get to the point where you put your faith in Jesus Christ and not in yourself anymore. Stop it. Stop putting faith in yourself. Put your hope in another person. Not back on you, but in Jesus Christ. And accept his payment as your personal debt payoff to God for your sin on his cross. And then tell people, aren't you relieved? You can enjoy the mercy of God now. And rely upon the Holy Spirit to actually produce spiritual fruit in you. And tell them, you know, it's not going to be long if you haven't already felt it. And that is, you're going to feel relieved. The sin burden has been lifted off your back. You're going to feel you have a real hope for heaven. It's not sort of that mushy spiritual thing that when I die, I'm going to go to some ethereal place and it's heaven and it's going to be great and it's a lot of white stuff there, you know, and glowing, you know, that kind of goofiness. But they're going to have a real solid hope for heaven. And you tell people that you're going to have a new peace in life. Your life's going to be totally changed. That's one way you can share the gospel with people, especially in the face of tragedy. Well, let me pray for us. Lord God, we behold your justice and your mercy this morning from this text, both things. And you are righteous in your justice, how you choose to execute it, and you are right in hiding your purposes from us. Because you are the Holy One and we are not. And we praise you that you are the merciful one, that you have given to us Jesus Christ, the one who would pay the penalty for our sins, the righteous one who would die for the ungodly. We thank you for this mercy and that you're merciful to us in this world. Keep us from so many judgments, so many, so many evil things in this world and others. And so often it is done to draw us closer to you. And we pray that you would guide us and help us as your people here. We're gathered as true believers in Jesus Christ, most of us this morning. And we're here because... We want to know you better, and we want to be able to make the gospel more clearly known to our friends and our family and people that we interact with in this world this week. And we want to know how to interpret our world from a biblical framework. So we ask that you would do those things for your glory. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray this morning. Amen.